Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. In a letter to his parents, Eric Freen wrote, Our nation is far from what it was and what it should be. I have seen so many depressing changes made in my time that I cannot imagine what it must be like for you. There is so much wrong, and on so many levels, only passing through the crucible of another revolution can get us back to the liberties we once had. I do not pretend to know what that revolution will look like, or even if it will be successful. Tension is high at the moment, and the time seems right for a spark to ignite a fire in the hearts of men. And on September 12, 2014, Eric Freen tried to start his revolution. I'm Chris Gotzik, and this is Chasing Evil. Today, we're going to take you inside an intense 48-day manhunt that occurred after Eric Freen shot Pennsylvania State Police Corporal Brian Dixon and Trooper Alex Douglas. Tragically, Corporal Dixon died in the shooting. With me today are the deputy marshals who tracked down Eric Freen in the Pocono Mountains. Scott Kimball, who is the deputy commander of the Special Operations Group, Roland Yabaldo, who is a senior inspector in the Organized Crime and Drug Enforcement Unit, and Scott Mulkowski, a retired 23-year veteran of the Marshals Service and retired supervising director of the Gulf Coast Regional Fugitive Task Force. Back in 2014, Roland and Scott were also members of the Special Operations Unit, sometimes referred to as SOG. Welcome, everyone. Scott Kimball, let's start with the tragic events of 2014. Yeah, Chris, be glad to. Uh, so September 12, 2014, Freen actually set up and ambushed two troopers at the Blooming Grove Barracks um, at 11 p.m. shift change. So Freen had uh, hid himself in the woods. Corporal Dixon um, was the first one to be engaged and shot and killed. And then the other re- trooper that was in the parking lot um, on the phone at the time um, heard gunfire, uh, went into the parking lot with his pistol, and did drag Corporal Dixon uh, back into the barracks. Um, and then Trooper Douglas was was also shot in the hip. Freen's st- trying to start his revolution. What does he have with him? What kind of rifle? Um, I believe at that point it was a 308. 308. For yeah. the gun layman, what is that? What kind of rifle and uh, scope is that? How would you describe that? It's a deer hunting rifle. Okay. So it's got some range on it as it's well. It's got some range and some really strong put-down power. So when Corporal Dixon was shot, he was shot through the um, body armor. It, pe- it pe- penetrated his body armor, and he succumbed to his injuries. There are many different levels of body armor, and some stop handguns, and some will stop rifles, but some will not, as far as I understand. That's true. Think about uh, uniformed police officers on the street. They're wearing what they call soft body armor. And that's under their uniform clothing. It will stop um, pistol rounds, Mm -hmm. um, pistol caliber rounds. And then if you see like a typical SWAT officer going into like a direct action type of role with a more robust external vest carrier, then they have what's called conjunction plates. So that's usually a rifle rated plate that's worn married up with and worn with the soft body Mm -hmm. armor that will stop rifle rounds. And on this night, there was no threat. So there's no particular reason they would wear anything other than their light armor. This was an absolute ambush um, by a coward hiding in the woods that shot uh, two police officers that were showing up for work. Mm -hmm. He then disappears. And three days later, I understand, a man was walking his dog and found a Jeep submerged in a swamp about two miles from the crime scene. And in the Jeep... They found Freen's social security card, some information on foreign embassies, camouflage paint, and a bullet casing that seemed to match the rifle that Freen uh, used. So Eric Freen became the primary, I guess, at this point, and only suspect. I think he became the primary suspect um, at that point. I'm not sure if they knew he was the only suspect, but he was certainly the target of the investigation um, and the murder and attempted murder of the two troopers at the barracks. And as you can imagine, the number of law enforcement on scene grew exponentially. By September 24th, there were 1,000 law enforcement on scene. 
There was ATF, FBI, state and local law enforcement from the surrounding states. There was a hotline established. There were digital billboards everywhere. Yet even with all those resources, Eric Frayne still evaded capture. So how does the call come to you guys? So we got the call. Um, like I said, the, the incident at the barracks happened on the uh, September 12th. We got the call on the 24th, uh, 12 days later. That actually came from the U.S. Marshal in Pennsylvania, Marty Payne. Um, who knew of the special operations group, knew of the capabilities, um, and we were actually asked to come in to help um, with a search of a large um, structure uh, the following day. So we got a call, uh, if memory serves, at, at 345 on Wednesday the 24th, and they wanted a 10-man team on the ground the next morning by 06. And we rolled into Pennsylvania and we were there at 4.30 in the morning on the 25th. When you guys got the call and came on scene, you obviously had gotten a little bit of an intel on who Eric Freen was. So what did you find out about him, and what did you think you were going to face? I think some of the initial reports uh, coming about Eric Freen was he was a fairly accomplished um, shooter, um, had some uh, military training, uh, kind of likened himself. Um, it was modeling himself after some uh, Eastern European snipers, um, was doing uh, paintball gaming with friends. Um, we were told by family members that his father would typically drop him off in the woods and pick him up uh, 12 days later. Um, and he was a bit of a survivalist. Mm -hmm. um, he had access to weapons, um, explosives. Uh, we did recover some IEDs. So you're on scene, and your first task is to search a large structure. Right? And that, that structure was, I believe, the abandoned Pocono Hotel, I believe. It, it must have had four or 500 rooms. You have to understand, this is the Pocono, okay. Poconos we're talking about. Right. For those that are unaware, it's, it's, in, it's in Pennsylvania. This is about maybe 65 miles from New York City. The Poconos in the 80s. 90s was rocking. Rocking. I yep. mean, if you haven't seen or or heard of heart-shaped tubs in your <laughs> suites or champagne-style glass, you right. know, uh, tubs uh, in honeymoon suites, this was the place for it. This is where you bought your rent, your your rental property, your lakefront property. In fact, that we we ran into multiple Lake Minnetonkas or or camps with with these beautiful homes that people probably kept for generations upon generations, and now being kicked doors being kicked down, looking for this. So you, you literally had to clear a five hundred room hotel. Yeah. So part of this this request here was clearly uh, a mutual aid assistance. Uh -huh. There's no way that a local police department can clear a structure this big safely. Right. And Scott will tell you, this was treated like an active shooter at the time. Uh-huh. And, you know... So, you'll it so, so it's not the kind of thing you go through quickly. You have to take precautions. You do, but in this instance, an active shooter is, is, is hunted and tracked down until you neutralize the threat. Right. If he's not shooting... You are passively and methodically searching and quickly searching areas or rooms or structures until you get to that shooter to neutralize them. And at the same instance, officer safety goes out the window. Mm -hmm. On a regular patrol day, officer safety is paramount. And during an active shooter, officer safety goes out the window. You're going to, shoot, to neutralize that threat. Mm -hmm. And that was our, our mindset in this case, and that was likely the mindset of all federal agents or officers, you know, attempting to locate Freen. Mm -hmm. So you found he was not at that hotel. And then does your mission switch? It did. It took us, I think, 24 hours to get kind of reassigned. We were then reassigned to the FTOC, which is the Ford Tactical Operations Center. We would typically um, rely on tips and sightings and reports and then to Roland's point, you would quickly respond to that area and, and try to track down, you know, what that sighting was. Right. One of the interesting things we saw in one of the original briefings was the primary objective that was being put out was that we were, everyone was to provide for the safety of all responders and the public. And that's not the primary goal of Special Operations Group. Our job is to hunt down and find evil. Um, so it wasn't so much you know, protecting ourselves or the public. It was to go after and find this person that ambushed two troopers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, very different mindset. What kind of capabilities do you guys have and how many teams are there around the country that have those capabilities? 
I guess I, I kind of have a canned response to that because I'm asked, you know, what makes special operations group special. Right. Um, so I'll, I'll pitch that and then I'm sure Scotty and Roland can chime in. I mean, Roland makes special operations special. Uh, he's, he's a, he's, he's pretty special. <laughs> <laughs> I guess one thing that, that when they ask about special operations group and are you a SWAT team, um, then I, I say, yes, we are a SWAT team and that we do have special weapons and tactics to handle situations. Um, but I asked them, you know, how many SWAT teams in the country can go out and serve a high-risk warrant? And after a bit of discussion, we, we all come to the same realization that every SWAT team in the country can serve a high-risk warrant. That's their bread and butter. Right. You have a warrant, there's an address, there's a residence. Everyone can breach. Everyone can do a surround and call out. Mm-hmm. Any SWAT team in the country can serve a high-risk warrant. How many SWAT teams in the country can throw things at the same situation like canines, explosive breaching, drones, technical surveillance. Well, that list gets a little bit narrower. And then you talk about how many of those SWAT teams in the country can go into the woods at night, operate with night vision and thermal, and be on target on time. And that number becomes significantly less, probably in the tens. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the things that makes special operations special. And so you guys get reassigned. You're about to start a manhunt. It was described to me finding somebody who doesn't want to be found in the woods as literally a needle in a haystack. I think that's definitely fair to say. At Roland's point, this was the primary um, vacation spot for everyone that fled New York every summer to escape the heat. Um, It was everything from ski chalets to honeymoon locations, to summer camps, uh, to small, you know, post-World War II shotgun-style shacks that people built for hunting. Right. And initially, the entire area is closed. Schools are closed. Businesses are closed. Roads are closed. Everyone's been told to shelter in place. They didn't really know where Eric Freen was. So we're certainly probably focusing on a 60-mile kind of area encompassing um, the barracks. Okay. And and with the hotline, you're also getting tips that he's all over the place or most of the tips say he's in a particular area? I'm, I have the tip sheet that, that I actually received the date that we reported to Pennsylvania. And uh, this was 12 days into the manhunt. And the tip sheet was titled lead number 1,294. That that in itself would be a daunting task to follow up on 10% of those leads. What kind of terrain were you guys facing? Again, you're talking about the Poconos here. I, I, I used to visit. I'm a New York yuppie myself, so I used to go to... We don't want to know if you had a heart-shaped tub. <laughs> <laughs> I chose a champagne glass. I would go several times a year uh-huh. to go snowboarding. And um, this is, when you were talking about snowboarding, you're talking about an elevation of at least close to 2,000 feet for for instance, maybe two, 3,000 feet at its highest point. Pennsylvania, for those of you that don't know, is very rocky. And slate is everywhere on these mountains and, the, and this terrain. When that is mixed with dew and moss, it's like an ice skating rink on these jagged edges of slate. And you're dealing with a survivalist who's all camoed out. There is a likelihood that he is going to be potentially off the trail in the middle of some dense brush, so you're going to have to go check those areas. As soon as we get on the ground, we're already getting a call about a sighting. I mean, no more than 10 minutes, maybe 20 minutes on the ground, there's a sighting that Freen was in and around our perimeter. Okay. So we grab, we grab whatever we can to kit up. Again, we're coming off from all different directions. Right. Grab whatever kit we can. And we, start, we, we had to learn real quick about the terrain, right. about our mission, about our safety, and about this coward that's running right. in the woods. Ten minutes on the ground, we're already hunting. And how dense are the woods? It opens up. There's dense, don't get me wrong, there's dense, unpopulated, uh, untraveled, unimproved areas of the Poconos. And there are also known for their nature mm-hmm. trails and open fields. And it's so picturesque, mm-hmm. act- actually. Mm-hmm. And let me ask you, is the one thing in the back of your mind, because it's the first thing I thought of, is you're getting ready to go. There's a sighting. You're going to investigate it. You're going into the woods. 
Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. No matter where he's hiding, it's a likely assumption that he's going to see you before you see him. And there is a strong possibility, obviously he's already killed one member of law enforcement, shot, seriously wounded another, that he potentially could shoot you guys at a vulnerable point and you'd have no idea where he's shooting from because of the terrain. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, I, I think it is. That was always on, on my mind. So Scott was the task force commander at the time, Scott Kimball, and um, Scott had me as one of the lead navigators for the time he was there, meaning that I was getting him and his team and our team on point and on time. Mm-hmm. The method you had to do to navigate was to either look at a map, look down at a compass, or look down at a GPS system, and also point and point that team in the right direction. You're likely, not necessarily all the time, at the front of the this line. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't think that I had a thought of being shot right in the middle of my friggin' grape, um, as I'm looking down and making sure we're we're oriented in the right position. You're wrong. I, I, in fact, I would always have a buddy next to me and say, hey, you're you're sticking next to me and your rifle's always up as I'm looking down and navigating. So, yeah, I mean, everybody was thinking that they could easily be shot. All three of you are prior military. Roland and Scott Kimball, former Marines, and Scott Melkowski, former Army Special Forces. Did that experience give you an advantage in this environment? Yeah, yeah it, it helped. It helped us immensely. Roland, I've talked to you before. You're like, look, the woods are not for everybody. There's plenty of people in law enforcement who are very comfortable in urban environments, but the woods present a particular set of obstacles that could be terrain related. It could be insect related. I'll throw I'll throw something else there that's daunting. We hunt in the night, right? right? So put all that together and turn off the lights. Tell me some of the obstacles or some of the things that play on you at night that are particular to the woods. We, uh, there was one mission we had where on one given day where we had to set up an LPOP, a listening post observation post. It's typically surveillance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is what deer hunting, deer hunters do, or any hunter would do. Uh-huh. You, you find a position and you listen. And we obviously picked a LPOP or it was dictated to us what position we would take by, by the, by the higher up. Um, and you would sit there, you would insert in the middle of the night. And then you would exfil before before uh, dawn. You're sitting there listening and waiting. Um, it takes it takes a lot of patience, right? Um, squirrels, wildlife, snakes, ticks, ticks. All- I mean, look, Lyme disease is no joke. How is the tick situation? I mean, it's something. It seems you know such a minute thing to talk about when you're doing a manhunt of a murderer. But on the other hand, it's a factor. Awful. If you don't like bugs. You sure as hell shouldn't be in the woods. You remember that one push we had. So one of the tactics we used was called pushing. So if there was a sighting, we would launch the 10-man SOG team, find any sign or spore or evidence that the fugitive was in that area. Define spore. The shining example of that would be a footprint. Uh-huh. Um, but we've, we've tracked people in the woods for hours and never seen a footprint. What you're right. more going to see is, is leaf flip, uh, vegetation change, um, impressions from um, foot strikes or ground dispersion or movement. Um, so you can find spore as any indication, whether it's on the ground or the air. Or, for example, someone might have walked through a trail and um, walked through a spider web. So uh-huh. that's an example of air spore. So that suspects in the woods, there's a sighting. You launch a special operations group team. You quickly do is you want to decide direction and travel mm-hmm. and distance. If you just following somebody through the woods and you're slower than they are Mm because you're trying to track them Mm -hmm. 
you're you're just going to know where they were. You're not going to necessarily close in on them. Right. So you need to to close that time and distance gap. Um, that's the that's the critical element. Right. Find out where they are. Find out where you think they're going. Put up a block and element. Get on them. Press them. And then basically ambush them. In this instance, we located or closed with and located a mama bear and her cubs. So we're going back to the point of you know mm-hmm. how how dangerous this is. Aside from you know from from the cop killer that's out in the woods, the environmental right issues that we were dealing with. We now had a mother bear that was very pissed off at us, and we had to figure out what we were going to do. I don't think any of us had had uh, had the heart to put down a mama bear. Yeah. Um, so we, uh, we, we, those were just one of the instances that could have gone south. There were well, no, no, wait a second. You can't leave that hanging. What happened to the mama bear and the cubs? I guess we literally came up to this mama bear. It's the first time I've seen it. She was rocking this big tree limb in front of us and just barking at us to let us know not to come any closer to her cub. So we, we at that point, we just split the team and we just bypassed her and continued on and you know and met up with the blocking element. Right. Let me ask you because you're talking about uh, Scott. Uh, Kimball, uh, the footprints. How do you establish a baseline? How did you guys get the first one to go, okay, out of the hundreds of footprints we're going to see all over this area, this is the one that we're looking for? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, And actually having spent two rotations out there in Pennsylvania with these men tracking Freen, um, I never once saw what you would determine as a clear footprint. Like you would like to think when we went to originally to tracking school with David Scott Donnellan. They would start with, on day one, um, a sandbox. Um, they would literally put sand down, rake it. Someone would walk through it. You would look at primary impact areas, how the foot rolls, mm. and you would look at the, the things you would like to get from a true footprint. It's very rare you're going to find a footprint. Okay. Um, early on, uh, with the search warrant at Eric's house, they did pull out a box from under his bed, I believe, mm-hmm. um, with a pair of Danner boots. Uh, they tracked the pair of boots down to what was going to be in the box, and we did have a photograph of the boot circulating. Uh-huh. So that's one imprint we were looking for. So it you knew a, the pattern on that boot? We knew the pattern on the Danner boot, and then we kind of called it the Christmas tree pattern so you can actually visualize what you think you're going to see. Uh-huh. We would look at the search areas we were going into. You would look for what we term, term terrain traps, you know, areas where he might have to cross a dirt road or a stream or a muddy, swampy area to look for a boot print. So those might be better areas for boot prints, but might cause a little bit more of an issue for a, a tracking dog, for instance. Um, I, I think it also is is a danger area for us because uh-huh. um, if if you're thinking this is somebody who's going to set up at a barracks because he knows that troopers have to come to the barracks for a 2300 shift change, he also knows that if he's going to come through the woods on a stream under a bridge per se, that's a uh, that's a train trap. You know, so he may be even setting footprints knowing we're going to cross that area as well. Mm-hmm. There's only one time that I know we found an actual boot print. It was photographed, and it was determined that it did match Freen's footwear, um, and he was wearing those boots at the time of capture. Right. That's the only time we saw right. the actual boot print. There were numerous times that we could say that he had traveled in this area because of those impressions and spore that he was leaving in that area unless he's walking in a sandbox or on mud you're just not going to see that's hollywood you're just not going to see the perfect size 11 boot print right. at a stream bed and right. that's where you're going to start and and the other thing was that this is september into october it foliage was likely at its peak in the pennsylvania mountains uh-huh. in the pocono mountains so even you know Whatever spore you had would be covered up by le- by foliage within right. hours. Within hours, and spore again is a sign a sign that you're looking for. It could be a broken spider web, weeds that have that have been stepped on or something like yeah, that. If you think of someone, uh, if you go out the back of your house in the early morning, and then you let your dog out, and your dog runs across the grass, and then mm-hmm. you can see that trail where the, the leaves the the grass blades have moved, and the dew has been moved, and it's almost a highway. You know, for those first 30, 30 minutes, 
Um, so spore is any kind of sign that somebody uh-huh. has disturbed that area and moved through. Right. You're trying to match that sign up right. with a report and a lead and then tie that to who you think Freen right. is and what direction he's going in. So you're trying to, every time there's a lead, anytime there's a sighting, you quickly launch a team that have to go into that area and then determine um, direction and distance. And, and, then a and because position. it's a needle in a haystack, is it safe to say that you're responding more to sightings than working like some kind of grid? In the beginning, it was sightings. Um, yeah, then, then it became both. And then it became, we're here to hunt under nods at night. Nobody really knew if he was actually even still there. Were there any sightings of him? I mean, what would keep that intense operation going there? The fact that he hasn't been found or the fact that none of the other leads the 1,000 or 2,000 by the time this, this went on were, were credible? I think it's both. Uh, to Malkowski's point, not only was it running down sightings, but after we had developed um, kind of an awareness of the area, we could be more, more proactive by doing the map searches, grid searches, determine these abandoned properties, find these dirt roads, um, kind of determine our own terrain traps. Um, and, and really start crossing areas off these maps. Right. There's no doubt about it. For 40, 40 days, we were chasing ghosts. Yeah. I mean, yeah. day one of, our, of, from, of us being there, Scotty told you we had 1,200, 1,300 leads ready. So we did get tasked with searching a, a hotel. Um, it was kind of like an old bed and breakfast. We had mutual aid from PSP, Pennsylvania State Police CERT, mm-hmm. um, our task force, New York, New Jersey Regional Fugitive Task Force was there. In fact, they they may have assisted or received the first call of the suspicious activity at this abandoned hotel. Uh We're now clearing this spooky-ass hotel. You got to think about this. This is like straight out of fear. What are those? Those Discovery Channel ghost movies, ghost stories type shows um, where it's, it's haunted and whatnot. Right. Um, chasing ghosts chasing ghosts so we're we're downstairs looking at searching boiler rooms that haven't been occupied and probably are haunted who knows <laughs> so we're searching multiple multiple levels of this hotel with um tracking canines and we get to the the top floor and one of the one of the rooms there had lights on it was abandoned everything else was shut was okay. shut off shut down and disconnected and disconnected off the grid but we get to the last room, and you could see lights from underneath the door. Mm-hmm. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We eventually, we ultimately make entry, assuming that this is it, this is where he is, or at least this is where his hideout is. Sure. We hit the door. We find a cache of a straight up, maybe not necessarily Freen's material or his hiding spot, but a cache of some weirdo's material there was crossbows arrows ammo rifles again this is a top floor last uh-huh. room in, a, in an abandoned hotel in the middle of the night there was a mannequin head on the other side of the room with arrows through its head um somebody yeah, we never creepy. we never found out who at least I, our unit i'm sure pennsylvania state police conducted a thorough investigation of who was actually there Oh, there was also, uh, it appeared like somebody robbed a bank because there was paraphernalia or evidence of a bank being robbed underneath the mattress or underneath the bed, like a safety deposit box emptied out or something. It was the weirdest thing after this search. But uh, Freen wasn't there. Uh, There was also a window open that led to some kind of, like the roof, which could have been an access for this guy, whoever was in this room, to to escape. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, we never caught Freem. That was one of the leads we chased. This is one of the elements of manhunting. You're encountering so many leads that are going to go nowhere, and you're looking for the one that's going to (laughs) yield gold. Absolutely, Chris. You have to run them down. I I remember I still have a bolo sheet, a be-on-the-lookout sheet, so we get into town on the 24th, and that same day a fella came in, 
and uh, and he was a bounty hunter. Mm-hmm. You know, so now you've got somebody that's a self-proclaimed bounty hunter looking for the money, and he's in camouflage with a rifle, and he's parking his car, and now he's in the woods. Right. So great. Um, two. That was the twenty-fourth. Two days later, um, there was a fellow that drove in with I remember Rhode Island license plate registration, um, and he wanted to help. Um, the day after that, um, there was a fellow that came in um, with emergency equipment, strobe lights, driving a you know, uh, basically uh, a law enforcement-looking vehicle, no credentials, armed with a, thir- a 380, uh, wanting to help. And he was sent out. Um, the next day, my favorite one, I, I remember. Send, I sent out, meaning send, send away. Yeah, he we was sent, right. So thank they, you, but no thank you. They do a bolo, sh- uh, be okay. on the lookout, so right. they'll take his picture. We'll get an update. It gets pushed to everybody's right. phone. There's posters put out. Um, the, my, my favorite one was the the fellow that showed up on the 28th, and uh, he was uh, working um, with an alleged psychic, um, and he was coming mm-hmm. in to help. Um, so you get these nutballs. Um, that see this information, but it's still somebody that's on the side of the road in camouflage with a rifle, and they're in the woods, and you have to track it down. And then, unfortunately, um, to Roland's point, the Poconos is a a, a very sought-after location, and it's everything from kind of shacks to really nice homes. And because all law enforcement is really focused on the capture of Freen, they're not really focused on just patrolling the area and doing typical law enforcement response so you also found that people would show up to check their own house or summer home, determine that it had been broken into. The tactical team would respond to clear it, and it's some that just wanted a new flat-screen TV. So people are also taking advantage of the chaos right. that's going on, and you have to run all this down. Tips were coming in. Case in point, where an old man hears movement in his old handmade barn. Okay. He hears movement upstairs in the crawl space or attic attic space um you wouldn't believe the amount of police presence that responded to this barn so there are probably four to five different SWAT teams to include (laughs) ourselves we hit this house it was it was towards dusk and we hit the house we run thermals we have a, a a helicopter from cbp running isr which is uh intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance that can run thermals okay these are you're talking about tools that are being used at the border right for 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 coyotes and human smuggling and human mm-hmm. trafficking mm-hmm. now so they pick up a heat signature in one of these barns or the barn that this old man calls and this is it right again right. this is it Ready to he's go. there right he you could see you could see from their isr that this heat signature or this body or this Heat source is in the corner, mm-hmm. you know, um, and it's big enough to be a human being. Okay. So, you know, people are going to ask, well, how, you know, how do you know it's a, it's, it's a human, it's a person or it's frame? How did you think it was framed? Because it was the size of a friggin' human being. Right. Or at least the human, the heat signature admitted the size of a human being. So we get, uh, we get locals and any other uh, tactical teams on a perimeter, set up a perimeter, cordon off that. So right. if anybody tries to sneak out of there. He's going to be caught, and right. with I mean, you literally could do hold hands. Right, that Without place it. was locked right. down. We took charge that day. I remember this because there were different. You know, when you're dealing with these different different tactical teams, everybody has this Type A personality. We had the Bearcat, uh, which is our armored vehicle uh-huh. with a ram mounted to the front of it, and we got approval from our higher from our command post to go ahead and execute a an entry into this barn. We move up slowly move up, and we hit this barn door, all right? We obviously know there's nothing there because we know that the heat signature is up front. Right. We wanted to see what kind of what kind of action we would get from hitting this barn, this front barn door. And you're going to drive an armored vehicle? Right through the front door. Through, okay. Yeah, right through the front door. Obviously, we have some guys inside. There's a porthole on top for, right. for one of our, our designated marksmen. We hit the front barn door. Right. Um, let everybody know that, you know, do not shoot inside because we're about to go in. Right. It's one of our deconflicting conflicting mm-hmm. uh, statements is whoever's on perimeter, do not shoot inside this barn, even if you're being shot at, because we now have friendlies. A huge part of this, being in the woods, being told where to go, having specific AORs, operating at night, a thousand police officers, was blue on blue. Right. We had to also be... 
be prepared and be mindful of other law enforcement officers mm-hmm. operating mm-hmm. In, in, in these areas. Sure. So anyway, and you're not all connected we're not by, all, by, no, con- there, by communications. There's not one communication system. There was one tracking system. I don't know if we were using it at the time. I can't remember, but they were, it, it was a, a, a Blue Force tracker, Blue Force tracker. Uh, of some sorts where you could see certain elements, mm-hmm. not all, but right. certain elements. And the other thing is it's cellular operated. We're already in a cellular degraded mountainous terrain right, right. so we're as good as as what we can get so cellular. blue on blue is a real possibility huge humongous okay. okay especially when you're snooping and pooping in the woods right um so we hit this barn door obviously we get nothing we still have a heat signature up top from thermals we wound up taking this ram and pointing it up uh, i, I want to say 45 degrees or so and getting as much extension as we can out of that and punching a hole in the top A-frame of that barn. Uh-huh. Again, nothing, nothing, no, no sign of movement. Right. We didn't have a ladder. We didn't have a way to get up or a boom to, to lift us up. So right. we, we threw guys on top of the Bearcat, threw the canine on top of the Bearcat, and made entry in the top crawl space or attic. Turned out, again, as we were chasing a bunch of leads, ghosts, and animals, this was the biggest raccoon <laughs> you have ever seen the size of a human the size of a human think about this how this affected our psyche i mean this is right. mentally mentally degrading not only are we physically degraded by humping through these woods and right. mountains for right. clicks upon clicks days upon days we had no days off we worked seven days straight and mostly like scott said eight to 14 hour days right um, more than fourteen hour days. This is the the ABCs of man hunting. Is you're gonna chase leads a cop killer? A cop killer. Nowhere. You are you. Right. You will have the heat on your back. Right. And right. That, and we sure as hell wanted to. Right. To. Uh, so it's pretty. De- it's demoralizing. It's demoralizing that what when we put all these assets together, put right. all these teams together, and again, assuming that Freen was in that that corner of that barn that we found a friggin' raccoon. Right. To add to this point of chasing ghosts and chasing all kinds of leads, we got a call about a white male fitting the description in kind of a residential area of the Poconos, uh, and he was walking around with with something slung or a bag or on his shoulder. Turned out to be an autistic child. It was a teenager. Teenager. um, Mm -hmm. Who was very interested in law enforcement activity and was a fan and was in a, a olive drab kind of Nomex flight suit, uh, was really kind of coming into the woods to see what law enforcement was up to because um, he was just a fan. Um, but it's a sighting. And um, it, it's kind of funny with communication, Roland uh, alluded to the Blue Force trackers. It really just took about 45 minutes to run this to the ground. Uh, so once, you know, once this individual was spotted, we brought a team in. Um, we could track this individual. We saw the direction of travel they were going in. Uh, we called um, uh, Border Customs. They launched their helicopter, and they actually saw this individual going into a residence. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, law, uniform law enforcement did the initial interview, and I remember the statement from his mother was, "Is my son has not been in that area all day. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Um, being fugitive investigators, um, kind of a red flag. So we were able to send some of our own marshal service investigators to kind of go in there and kind of calm the mother down and let her know that, you know, your son's not in trouble. We just need to know if that was your son. So we don't have a blue on blue situation. Let's 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 run this sighting down and let's cross it off the the whiteboard. Um, And that was it. It took us about 45 minutes to um, get an investigation team over there, talk to the mother, let her know that her son's not in trouble. And was that the sighting? And then it still took another three hours, I think, from the uh, from the cooler heads we had on the ground to realize this was a chasing a ghost, close mm-hmm. it down, mm-hmm. until other people 
we could finally, you know, get it into their brain housing group that uh, this this could be closed out. Right. The rush of adrenaline and then the letdown. The rush of adrenaline again on another sighting and then the letdown. This is every day. Every day. We had to search the paintball venue or location that Freen supposedly knew every he knew every intricate detail mm. about this paintball. Now, when you think of this, it's a it's it's a fabricated skirmish. Right. There's it's wars. It, there's fox tra- uh, foxholes, bunkers, structures. Sure. And here we are about to go into a you know into this environment and clear this area. Um, it was like going into a Hollywood scene right. and clearing this earth, this war zone right. or this fabricated war zone looking for a live action role player. Right. It's the first time I've encountered, you know, in 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 CONUS, the continental US was IEDs. So what what actually pushed us to go check out the paintball location was because um, there was a campsite discovered on the 29th of September that Freen had kind of dug into and made like a fortified um, foxhole. Mm-hmm. And they determined this foxhole was the same kind of foxhole he'd been used during paintballing. Uh-huh. And they had made those kind of foxholes at this paintball location as well. So they wanted to see if if the the campsite location was the same as the paintball location, which doesn't seem like it's really incredibly relevant. But um, at the campsite location, um, they, they did find two um, improvised explosive devices, IEDs. Um, they had fragmentation material taped to the outside of them. There was a trip wire with like a shotgun shell primer. Um, there's a hundred rounds of 308 ammo. Um, uh, they, they actually did so, DNA, I mean, DNA profiling on the dental picks found there to track it back to Freen. So this this campsite, not to mention his cell phone was there with some checkbook material. So yeah. clearly Freen's campsite. But this is just the breadth of this investigation. So we're we're looking for the sighting for the shooter in the woods. Right. And next thing you know, they're getting DNA off dental picks. And we're we're photographing, you know, a bunker right. at a paintball location to see if there's um, other kinds of, you know, intel or traps we can get from this right. paintball bunker that Freen constructed. I mean, and was he's this replicating these things? In was the this woods. an IED that everybody thought, you know what, this actually could work? What was, the way he designed it, it was, yeah, yeah, it was one hundred percent operating tripwire and and wired and ready to go. It's been forty three days. You haven't found an IED, and all of a sudden you find two very well-constructed pipe bombs. So that has to add additional concern. So I think, as, as Roland said earlier, we really expected, you know, movement to contact. You know, we were going to, whether it was a self-initiated, where is, you know, we would report to the F-talk every morning at 07. And we'd go and see uh, Captain White, now Major White, I think since retired. And we would get daily taskings to each uh, tactical element right. and we would also spend the night after we get off at you know 21 2200 we would look at the area we've searched so we would come to the table the next day and we'd have a tip sheet things they wanted us to run down and we would also present things that we wanted to go run to the ground right um, and then we would within 45 minutes hit the ground and that was it until mm-hmm. probably nine o'clock at night mm-hmm. Um, and if something came up during the day, then would get, you know, tasked out, you know, on, on a, a side mission. Um, but we were in the woods every day right. and we really thought it was going to be a movement to contact, whether it was us in like a column formation or a push on the line. Um, I'll tell you one, one reason why, uh, the unit, uh, you know, runs with suppressors, you, you know, to Roland's point about military, uh, we run with suppressors. Uh, one, because if you have to shoot at night, then it doesn't give away your location. Uh, two, if you have to shoot next to, you know, a coworker, you're not going to blow out his hearing because we're not wearing the direct action type of hearing protection you'd mm-hmm. wear mm-hmm. on a warrant service. And then three, if you're going to the woods with 10 men and you hear a gunshot and your whole team is suppressed, it means you're getting shot at. Right. So we really expected that this was going to be um, movement to contact, right. and then we were going to hear, um, hopefully, gunfire, and not one of our our you know fellow members struck um, as the the troopers were hit, and we were just going to 
close with and and take them down. Right. They determine the outcomes of these things. You know, um, if, if you're walking down the trail and it goes hands up, it's hands up. Um, if you can, you know, safely challenge them and it's dropped the weapon, they drop the weapon, they're in custody. Um, if they engage you, we're going to close with and, and take care of the threat. Right. So the pipe bombs are di- discovered on September 29th. You found some evidence of a camp that Freen put together and you found some well-crafted IEDs that have to be of additional concern. Absolutely. And to and- Roland's point with the uh, community and the overwhelming response, it was kind of funny because you would you would hear about, you know, we, we, we've served overseas as well. And the next day, the local community was sending in boxes and boxes of silly string. So one of the uh, kind of big army techniques of going into some of these, you know, huts overseas was to spray the silly string down the hallway to see if the string would be suspended in the air with a trip wire as they're searching these residences and, and buildings in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the next thing you know at the firehouse is cases of silly string. And it was pretty comical thinking mm-hmm. that, you know, this 10-man, you know, marshal service, you know, team was going to be in the woods, woods yeah. you know, like shooting silly string down the trail. Um, That's pretty ingenious, though. But it was, it was yeah. a concern. It does, you know, while you want to discount him that he's not, you know, Les Stroud living off the land as a true survivalist, he still laid in wait and ambushed and killed a state trooper and, right. and shot – Another trooper, um, I think 18 surgeries now. Um, mm. So he's a, definitely a, a, an adversary um, that has some camouflage, access to weapons, IEDs, trip wires, uh, knowledge of the local area, um, obviously doesn't want to get caught. Um, and I'm, I'm sure Scott Malkowski was, would, will get into it. But yeah. we, we definitely we knew he wasn't living off the land. Um, right. He definitely had some help. He's coming in and coming out. Um, I think there was enough sightings and activity to certainly keep us in the area. Right. Um, despite the approaching end of the fiscal year, uh, despite the concerns that he was going to ruin Halloween because schools are closed, businesses are closed. It's an economically um, uh, depressed area. Um, that hasn't seen the boom as it had from the New York tourists in the past. Right. So there was there was a push to get things back to normal. Mm-hmm. And I think every five or six days there was another sighting that we would run to the ground that was credible enough to keep everybody looking for Freed in this area. Right. So Scott Malkowski, the 29th happens. There's that big discovery of his camp, of the IEDs, and why don't you take it from there? We uh, got the assignment from PSP. Uh, to push into a wooded area. Mm-hmm. Um, so we left about 12.45 um, in the afternoon. Uh-huh. And as we're driving to the location, uh, we came across this uh, huge abandoned resort. It was the uh, Birchwood, Birchwood Resort uh-huh. um, in, the, in the Pocono Township. Um, it had a it had an air, airstrip, uh, well, obviously wasn't used in, in years, and it had hangars and had all kinds of, it had a hangar, and had all kinds of little apartments and condos in the area. Once we were there, I just had a feeling we'll do our pushes for PSP, which is what they wanted us to do. Right. And then we'll come, then we'll come back and we'll, we'll search this area. So that's what we did. We uh, did two pushes in the woods. We're done and about, uh, I want to say three o'clock. Right. And then we decided to go back to the area of the Birchwood Resort. So we got there, and like I said, I was fixated on this. I don't, I don't know why. I just had a good feeling. Um, this hangar, you know, where the hangar was at. We drove around, couldn't find it. The resorts were split by a road. Mm-hmm. There was a, a bunch of structures on the north side and a bunch of structures on the uh, south side. So I had my, you know, 10-man or 12-man team broken into two teams. Um, I had the Bearcats staged at the eight, end of each road. Just in case it was we were pushing the search and you know anybody across the road they would be able to see it. Right. So Alpha team, I was with the Alpha team. We searched the uh, um, structures on the north side, and then uh, Bravo team they searched the south side. And it was very obviously uh, physically, mentally draining and, and demanding. Um, so we're tired, and uh, again couldn't find couldn't find a hangar. Trying to find it, we linked up with um, actually a Poconos canine came up to us. They saw us in the area, and you know having a canine is a great asset. 
we met up at the main reception hall. It was a huge building, you know, huge hall, uh, restaurants, and we had the canine and we searched that area. We searched from, you know, obviously from the ground up, there's a couple stories, and we ended up at this last room and we could, we smelled smoke, like a, like a cigarette. So we're thinking, oh man, this, this you know, it's gotta be him. We would hit the place. Even though the place was abandoned, they still had a, a, a caretaker that was there. There was a handwritten note, hey, quit stealing my food. I'm a diabetic. So what Freeman was doing, he was taking the caretakers. By this time, it's getting, it's getting um, close to uh, close to dusk. And uh, so then we searched this huge gymnasium. I mean, it's like a weight room. The last building we had to search is an indoor bowling alley. Like I said, it's, it's getting dusk now. I'm like, man, if we don't get this guy soon, you know, we just had a feeling. And I couldn't, I still, I couldn't find his hanger. So I asked the Poconos canine. He's like, oh yeah, it's around the back over here. So, you know, I go around back. The guys are in the clearing with the bowling alley, and me and uh, Joe Galuski and John Schaff, we come to this bridge, this little wooden bridge. It's probably, you know, just the size of a car to drive through. Cross it, and there's the hangar. I see the hangar there. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm like, oh, okay, great. Hangers. Have to search the area. That's one of the last buildings we had to, we had to uh, search. Uh-huh. So cross the bridge. Heading towards the hangar. The hangar's right next to the airstrip. So it's a huge airstrip, open field in front of us. And it's very overgrown, weeds, gra- high grass. So I'm walking towards the hangar, and I catch movement out of, you know, with my eye. I see a black wash cap. And for a split second, I thought it was a hunter. Um, and it was, I figured it wasn't a cop because he was by himself. They just opened hunting season, you know, so it made our job even more difficult. Something mm-hmm. in, you know, for a split second, uh, it might be, uh, might be a hunter. But that was just for a second that I knew it was him. So I, because you recognized him, or what was? How did you know it was him? Yeah, I recognized him. Uh huh. Um, so once I saw him, um, I was in the lead, and John and Joe were behind me, and I just said, uh, "Suspect, quiet," and they flared out into a, basically an L-shaped ambush, flanking positions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I never looked back, so I didn't, I didn't know who went where. I just knew they, just from the training we have, you know, we train. You know, we went to contacts, how to patrol in the woods, how to set up ambushes. So once I said that, I knew they were going to flare out and um, basically set up like an L-type a- ambush in case he tried to run. And that's why I instantly knew it was him. So he was still walking, and I couldn't see his hands because the grass is very high. So I paused, raised my rifle, had it in my sights, was looking for his hands. He finally walked um, out of the tall grass, and I could see his hands. And he had nothing, he had no weapons on him. At that point, he still hadn't seen me. Mm-hmm. And then I, you know, assaulted forward, ran forward. And at about 20, 25 meters, I was trying to, I was trying to stay, or was trying, trying to stay in his blind spot. And then about 20 meters, 25 meters away from him, that's when he spotted me. He turned. Um, like I said, once I saw him, I knew it was him. Um, he turned towards me, announced, you know, police, U.S. Marshals. Get on the ground, and he complied. He got down in a prone position, but then his head was up, still watching us, watching you know what we we're doing. And obviously, we didn't. I didn't want that because uh, you know we talked about the IEDs, and you know we found it in their credible IEDs, and he might be wired. So obviously, we didn't want to watch us. When you say he might be wired, explain a little more. You know, like suicide bombers, they have IEDs and they're wired uh, to detonate on command to blow themselves up and take out whoever else is. Is there? Think of like a, mm-hmm. you know, suicide bombers. And and you thought this was a real possibility for Freem? Oh yeah, yeah. Because you know, I, I wasn't there when they got the IEDs. I came after, but I read reports and all the intel, um, so I knew he was capable of doing this. Um, so because of that, I ordered him to put his head in the ground and turn away from us. Mm-hmm. So he was prone, to, you know, head down and turned, you know, to the to the side so he couldn't watch us because he was trying to find, he was trying to look at me and trying to find out who else was, you know, out there, you know, Joe and he's trying to spot Joe and John. Right. Um, so <clears throat> once that happened, then I moved forward 
still no weapons in his hands. I moved up and I put my uh, foot on the back of his head because I had a rifle out, obviously. So I had to keep both hands in a rifle, had his head pinned to the ground or, you know, the, uh, the tarmac. And I waited till it was about a couple of seconds later, Joe and John got there. Uh, Joe had the handcuffs, had him out, gave him to John. Um, John put one handcuff on uh, behind his back. Once that happened, um, I kneeled on the shoulders, again, making sure control of his, you know, his body and his hands in case he would try to detonate himself. And then Joe got the other hand. And then uh, once he's handcuffs, we asked him questions. You have anything on you that's going to harm us? Any explosives, knives, guns? And uh, he said he had a knife in his pocket. Uh, so once that happened, um, I made uh, I asked John uh, to search him, which he did. Um, searched him thoroughly, obviously. And while he was doing that, um, I think Joe um, called the rest of the team from the bowling alley and uh, told him that we had Frayn and he gave her location. And the rest of the team, you know, came running to us a couple of seconds later and basically did a, um, a 360 perimeter around all of us, around, you know, Freen, uh, myself and, uh, and John. In case, um, he, in case what? In case he tried to run, in case he, you know, um, just as security, another reason why is um, at this time, Joe had, had I don't, it's dark now, and Joe spotted, saw the hangar door was open. There was a light on. So we did also did a 360 perimeter around us in case somebody was in the, in the hangar. We didn't know if he's by himself or not. Right, okay. Um, so that's another, another reason why we did uh, uh, 360 security. And it's kind of our SOPs, you know. Mm -hmm. um, Standard operating procedures. Yeah, yeah, to, you know, to do that. Right. And what was the call that you made back to base? So once that happened, once that was happened, uh, frame was searched twice. He was secure. The building was uh, secured. Then I called on a phone and called Scotty because uh, he's at the top. I told him, hey, well, we got frame. So, Scotty, you were the one who told everyone else? Yeah, it was uh, kind of a scene out of a bad movie because I, I knew where they were. And uh, so I just got the uh, grid coordinates from him and then uh i was at the talk which was basically a big u-shaped um conference table with like 30 people in there all mm -hmm. reporting from their different units um and i just uh i just stood up and just said uh can i have the room uh we've got them and i said uh stand by to copy and i said it'd be in uh, uh utm which is the grid system we were using at the time and i gave him the coordinates um, and then within minutes, uh, the PSP helicopter was overhead. Um, and uh, I think that was the day that SOG saved Halloween. Halloween had been canceled, and you guys caught him in the nick of time on October 30th. Getting back to Freen, what was the conversation like between you and Freen? Once I got up uh, close to him and told him to prone out, uh, and, I got, uh, and he was prone out, I got close to asked him his name. He said Eric Freen. Um, so once my guys were at the hangar, um, I asked him, I said, hey, is there anything, in, is there anybody else in the hangar? He said, no. I said, is there any weapons or, or handguns in there? And he's like, yes, there's two rifles up there uh, up on the second floor of the hangar. I said, what about any IEDs? He said, nope, no IEDs um, that he had on him or in the hangar. Um, and that's when he, I think he made his little comment about having, having, having been Mirandized yet. So the marshals don't normally Mirandize people? Uh, not normally because, you know, we're fugitive hunters. You know, we get the arrest warrant. Based on probable cause, a warrant's been issued, and they have to be memorandized if they're being asked questions in custody by law enforcement. In this situation, there's no reason to ask them any questions. That was up to the, the state troopers, the PSP. Their investigators were, were going to Mirandize him, interview him. Um, that was their whole part of their investigation. Mm -hmm. You're just going to ask officer safety issues or uh -huh. questions, uh, which is what we did. Was he amazed that you found him? Yeah, I think he was surprised. He smelled cleaner than we did. Whoever was helping him um, did so on the uh, caveat that, you know, he, he didn't bring his weapons, which is why I think he didn't have any weapons on him, especially his handgun. Oh. Um, so I thought that was kind of, that's, that's why uh -huh. um, he didn't have anything on him because he smelled fresh, smelled clean. So I think, I think he got dropped off at the other end of his airstrip and was going to his hangar because he'd been there for a while. Right, staying in, in a hangar, and uh, we got we got lucky uh, because if if we hadn't got him before we got into the hangar, 
he would have been in the hangar and that was the last place we we're, we're gonna we we're going to uh, search was that hangar and PSP they told me the next day that uh, he had two um, two rifles up there two shooting positions basically barricaded with um, cover around up on the top uh, second story so if we'd have made entry it could have got it could have been bad you know for uh, for us but then going back to uh, um, waiting for PSP uh, they showed up in Corporal Dixon's um, vehicle patrol unit and uh, then they took off our handcuffs, and um, the guys, the, the trooper searched them, um, put on um, Corporal Dixon's handcuffs, and then um, put them into the his unit, and they drove off. As is customary for a fallen officer when the suspect is being apprehended. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And on April 19th, 2017, Eric Freen was found guilty on all charges, including first-degree murder. And on April 26th, he was sentenced to death by lethal injection. He's currently sitting on death row at FCI Phoenix. So uh, we would like to dedicate this uh, episode, uh, this podcast, uh, to Trooper Douglas and Corporal Dixon, two fine officers that love the community, love the country, and did everything they could to protect it. Um, I also want to thank and mention Corporal Dixon's uh, wife, Tiffany. I met her at the, um, the at the trial. Just an outstanding, fine woman. Very inspirational, you know, to keep going. So I also want to, um, you know, mention Tiffany's sons and just let them know that, you know, your father was a hero and loved his country, um, loved you, and loved what he did. Well said. Okay. Yep, thank you very much. And thank you to Scott Kimball, Scott Milkowski, and Roland Ubaldo for sharing your experiences today. And finally, Chasing Evil is produced with the cooperation of the United States Marshals Service and contains interviews with current and retired employees as well as other persons. Opinions, positions, and views expressed by any of them may not reflect the official views, positions, or policies of the United States Marshals Service. Stay safe, everyone.